welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Finishing up our ABCA 2021 Hall of Fame podcast series is a tribute to Louisiana head coach Tony Robichaux. Coach Robichaux was the epitome of character and leadership. He was a man of strong faith who coached with the message of turning boys into men. He coached 33 seasons at the Division I level at McNeese State and Louisiana and ended with 1,177 wins. He guided the Cajun program to 12 NCAA regional appearances, four super regional appearances, and a 2000 College World Series appearance. He's the all-time winningest coach at Louisiana and McNeese State. In this episode, we will hear from six coaches that Coach Robichaux impacted greatly. We will hear from Radford head coach Carl Kuhn, Louisiana head coach Matt Deggs, Virginia Tech head coach John Sheff, West Monroe head coach and former Cajun assistant Wade Seminole, South Alabama head coach Mark Calvey, and Louisiana assistant Anthony Babineau. As we heard time and again from Coach Robichaux that it wasn't about the wins or baseball, it was about developing people and making a positive impact on the world around you. We will let Coach Robichaux lead us into the episode with one of my favorite press conferences of his, and then he will take us out of the episode with part of a clinic talk he gave at the Bigger Than Ball conference. Thanks for listening, and leave it better for those behind you. I always try to tell them almost the same thing every year to try not to let uh, baseball be your identity. Don't hook your identity to a game um, because I'm in this profession. It can hook um, baseball to me as my identity, uh, but that's not my identity. That doesn't need to be their identity. Um, baseball coach is, is what I do. It's not who I am. And I told them to make sure that they keep their heads up and they realize that they don't need to let this game, any failure, um, or the game of baseball be your identity. Um, the way you live your life from this point on should be your identity. Um, I don't think the good Lord's going to be up there with uh, a radar gun and a stopwatch and some plyo boxes to see what kind of athlete they are. Um, I think he's going to be up there, and I think he's going to have some poignant questions for him. You know, what kind of husband were you? What kind of father were you? Um, did you put your hands on your wife? Did you treat your wife the way a woman should be treated? I think I think he's going to have some poignant question for him. I don't think he's going to say, I don't think you can get in. you got 10 run ruled by Texas State. I think he's going to want to know what you've done with your life. And so our biggest challenge to him is not to let the sport – become their identity because when they leave here, when they're when the game's over, when the sport's over for Demo, now his his identity identity will be gone if he's linked it to baseball. So that's the number one thing I try to tell him. I try to get him to understand that life's personal and professional challenges are the real games, not baseball. Um, you're playing baseball, you're playing a game. This is a game uh, at the end of the day, but you got a lot of life left. Take what happened in this game. Use what happened in it. I told them we've got some players since they've left here when they thought their last out was made, that it was the end of the world because they had looked at, hooked their identity to a game, that they, they, they've had some, some, some things that happened to them in their life after they left here that's way tougher 
than this game tonight. This is a tough loss. Nobody likes it. Our players don't like it. Our coaches don't like it. But we've got players that have left here that have lost their wife. We've got players that have left here that lost their baby on the night before they were going to have their first child. Uh, we've got uh, another player that his son was killed in a car accident and he had to bury his son. So, so my biggest thing to them at the end of the season is just to make sure that they don't get caught up in cultural measurement don't let somebody tell you, you know, that maybe you were a loser because you lost a baseball game. Yeah, you lost a baseball game, but that didn't make you a loser. And make sure that when you move on from here, um, you go do the things, you go live your life the way you're supposed to live it. Because, again, um, I don't think the good Lord's going to be up there with a radar gun to see how hard Stokey's throwing or to to see a time demo in the 60. I just don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to want to know what kind of men they were. And that's our ultimate teach here is to try to get them to, to get from a boy to a man. Here with Carl Kuhn, head coach at Radford. Coach Kuhn, thanks for coming on with me. Right, appreciate thanks for it. Coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. We're doing an ABCA Hall of Fame uh, podcast series for the 2021 class, and I wanted to get Coach show in there um, just as a tribute to him. Can you talk about uh, your relationship with him and how much he meant to you? Uh, he was one of the three mentors that I had in the game. Um, when I first got to Arkansas Little Rock as a pitching coach, um, we had a dreadful situation there in Little Rock, and Coach Robe was uh, established, and he was he was a well-oiled machine there at Lafayette, and he didn't take over a well-oiled machine, and he cleaned it up. And we we had seven pitchers our first year, and we got through 450 plus innings. And Coach Robe came up to us, uh, came up to me at the end of the season, and he said, uh, "I'd love for you to come down and, and talk with me about keeping your pitchers healthy." And I said, "Well, coincidentally, I'd love." to talk with you about how your pitchers are so darn good. And so he said, well, how about you drive down to Lafayette and I'll put you up for two days. You tell me what you know, and I'll tell you what I know. And I'm a young guy and, you know, I'm so, you know, on guard for what this guy is going to do to me. And he's going to put me in some Jedi mind trick. And he goes, just so, you know, not only did he put me up and fed me breakfast the next day, but he said, you know, just so you know, I'm above board, I'm going to go first. So I'm going to tell you all that you want to know. And he took his entire pitching system and put it on his desk. And it was the best day of my professional life as a pitching coach. And I left there. I felt like Mike Leach on napkins. I ran out of notepads and I had stuff on napkins. And I did the same for him the next day. Um, my seven years at Little Rock, there were two coaching staffs that came over to my house for dinner when we played them. And Babs and him uh, and his early coaches um, were, were one of the, of the only staffs. And I think if you break bread with someone, um, you know, that, that really means something. And Tony was a, a man of faith. He was a family man. Um, and I remember being scared out of my mind going to Virginia, and I didn't quite know if I could handle it. And I called Tony, and, and, and Coach Robe talked me off the ledge, and he said, not only are you ready, um, he said, but you're going to kill it. You're going to do well. And I didn't quite believe him. And I thank him so much for the time and the, the faith he had in me. And we had a, a little thing where we had every year, the week before 
uh, opening day, um, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday before Friday opening day, um, he and I would talk. And it would probably start at around 11 and end around 4 in the morning. And it was just a little ritual that we had. And now that Coach Robe had passed on, um, I did it last year with Justin, his son. And I told him that we had to do it, and he obliged. And his son and I become uh, very close as well. Um, I feel so, I know there were over a thousand people at his wake and his funeral. Um, the thing about Coach Robe that makes him so special is, is every one of those thousand people felt like they were one of two or three with him. And I, I don't know a better compliment to give a man. And when I hugged his twin brother, I almost cried because I looked like, I thought I was looking in the mirror. Um, and he's just a great man. He was a great mentor. He got to a point in his career where wins didn't matter and lives did. And he, he's always won with men. But to have that peace in our game where you're always feeling so squeezed, um, you know, the good ones go, go young, right? The good ones go fast. So, Do you think that's his biggest legacy is teaching coaches how to, how to lead men? Yeah, I do. Um, but, you know, Ryan, honestly, he was so selfless. Um, he got given this pitching f philosophy and system, you know, by my recollection and talking with him 25, 30 years ago from Coach Bertman at LSU. And I know that that was a really, really big part of his young development. And you talk about a guy, instead of just holding everything close to the vest, he wanted to pass it on for the betterment of the game, for anyone who wanted to be taught and to be tutored. And Coach Bertman did it with him, and now he passed it on to how many others. And his tree, I mean, even if, even if you never coached with him, if you coached against him and he took you under his wing and took you into the fold, you feel like you're under the robe's tree, you know? And it, it was just such an honor. to, to It was such an honor to be a friend uh, of his. It, it was such an honor to be a peer and a friend of his. When he opened his pitching book up, what were some of the things that were in there that maybe you hadn't thought about as a young coach that maybe opened some, some of your eyes up to some things? Ryan, you're going to laugh, but everything. You know, I didn't quite understand how, I mean, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, he's got defensive, defensive shifts moving with pitch counts and then the type of pitcher. And I'm watching it going against him, asking the questions, and I'm, I, I'm literally... Uh, while we're on offense, I'm writing down questions, you know, and, and I had this sheet, we play a three game set against him and I got this two sheets of paper of questions and I just kept having him, kept having him and kept watching film against him. And, and then, okay, finally I get to go down there and ask him all these questions. It was everything. It was, why is the right fielder, you know, in flair? with two strikes and, and how does he know to move there? And then how does he not know to not move there with a left-handed pitcher who's burying a breaking ball? And how do you, how do you uh, set somebody up? You stand them up and then you give them an easier side. And it was just repetitive communication and there was no garnishing on the sides. It was all meat and potatoes and you're just scribbling to catch up. And I honestly dove into it. I just, I honestly dove 100% into it. And it was the missing link for me, right? You got a lot of good pitching coaches out there in the country, a lot of good ones. And they're, you know, one of my dearest friends tells me, you know, you're not the only one that does it. 
one way, right? There's a million one ways to skin a cat. And I have to be reminded of that because you get kind of sidetracked into thinking that your way is the best way, right? Um, but he just filled in all the blanks. He filled in all the questions for me and he was so selfless. And I think that was your, your, your question was, what is his best legacy? And I think he was just so selfless. I mean, I don't know. I mean, a mid-major to have that many wins under his belt and getting to Omaha and not backing down. I mean, I remember him telling a story when, you know, he was at South Carolina in the Super, I believe it was, and the gates weren't open and they showed up for the game and he walked right through the front gate with his team. I'm like, the guy was, it was so confident and so the, the, the right thing. And it was always about the right thing. It didn't matter, you know, what was the, 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 uh, the popular thing. It was the right thing. And you, you got to respect that. I, re- I just, I love the man. I really do. Here with Matt Deggs, head coach at Louisiana. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You worked for some of the best head coaches in the game. You know, what was the difference with Coach Robichaux compared to some of the other guys? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate, Ryan. Just, you know, I don't know if it's catching breaks or what, but to be with Dave Van Horn and, and you know, before that, Butch Hobson and, and, and then Rob Childress and then uh, ultimately, you know, Coach Robe. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's it's been very uh, diverse, uh, you know, just my coaching experiences. You know, when you look at, at Butch Hobson, you know, one of the greatest baseball minds I've ever been around. And then, you know, you look at, at Coach Dave Van Horn and just an, an incredible uh, manager of not only the game, but his program and team and just very business savvy and, and understands bottom line and what it takes to produce, you know, winners and champions year in, year out. And then uh, Coach Rob, or, uh, uh, Rob Childress, just very relational and uh, very organized and uh, also very, very driven. It was incredibly tough to, to even have a chance to outwork him. Uh, just first one there, last one to leave. And then, you know, Coach Robe is totally different from all of them because he's kind of a mixture of, of everything. And, you know, he came along in my life, you know, the, the man helped save my life. And, and I was broken, had lost my family, had lost my job, had lost everything. And, uh, you know, nobody in the, in the country, even though I had a pretty good resume, uh, I was pretty much like damaged goods. And, and so nobody in the country would touch me. And, and, uh, you know, one man, coach Robe, he sat me down in a hotel room in San Marcos, Texas and, and middle of 2012, uh, the season. And, and he just looked at me, he said, I don't care what you, what you've done. And he was the first guy that said that he said, I don't care what you've done. I only care what you're going to do about it. And from that second, Coach Robe offered me the gift of a second chance, which to me is the most powerful thing on earth. And, you know, what started off as a, as a boss quickly became a mentor uh, and, and then a, uh, one of my best friends and then like a brother to me. And, uh, you know, Coach was so wise and he was so patient, uh, yet he coached so passionately and cared so much. He was a, he was a great baseball mind. He was a great motivator. Uh, he was an incredible, incredible marketer and planner. 
you know, he built this program from the ground up uh, in, into what it is today. When, you know, one of the top 50 programs in the country with a top 25 facility and, and a top 10 fan base, uh, which in my mind is the number one fan base. Uh, and so he was kind of a collection of everything that I had been around and, and at the perfect time because I needed that wisdom and I needed that patience and I needed a guy that believed in second chances. And uh, he, you know, that's the thing about coach is he made a, it's hard to pass away and draw two to 3000 people to your funeral. And he meant so much to so many in so many different ways. He was a lifeline for me. Uh, he was a mentor for others. He was a coach to others. He was a brother to others. Uh, he was just a guy that you could lean on. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of a long way to answer your question, but he was just an eclectic mix of everything. And he was a master at all those trades. How did he help you kind of piece things back together? You know, he said, you said he saw something in you that maybe nobody else was seeing at that time. How did he help you kind of piece things back together? Well, I think we, we fed off of each other and he came along and saved my life. And literally and i was coming along you know it's funny we had known each other but we really didn't know each other until they played in our regional when i was at a&m in 07 and, and he really was paying attention to what we were doing as far as the pack and kind of our run and gun offense and he had gone in the clubhouse and, and grabbed uh you know kind of our blueprint off the off the pinup board because <laughs> he was a pack rat and uh he he loved to learn that's the thing about coach rope he loved knowledge he loved to learn and so he he had a desire for that and then he had a desire for that you know just kind of attacking offense and and what we do and so he came along for me and saved my life but then what i had what i could potentially bring to the table also I came along at the right time for him as well. It, it re-energized, reinvigorated, uh, because they had been down a little bit and, and he was fighting some things. And I think that initial, you know, my hunger to get back in and his willingness to give me a second chance and, and kind of let me run with it kind of fed off of each other and created this kind of inseparable bond. And, uh, you know, and that's what it was until the day he passed. What's your best in-game memory of Coach Robichaux? Oh, man. You know, there were, we, it was this crazy two-and-a-half-year run that you really can't describe to people, right? And because when I got here in the middle of 2012, they weren't very good. And he knows it. Everybody knows it. And, and so he, he didn't let me do anything but recruit, really. He said, I want you to evaluate. I want you to recruit. We'll start with the pack next year, which was very wise, right? And so we, we managed the roster and we're, you know, brought the guys back that we wanted to bring back and brought in some new faces, and, and, but really not that many. So we, we bring back a lot of these kids and, and, and we go to work that following year and, and just with some hunger and passion – and we go from 23 and 30 to 43 and 20. It was the largest turnaround in the NCAA. We lose to LSU in the, in the regional championship game, lead the nation in offense. And then come back, and that sets the stage for a 58 and 10 team that, you know, becomes the first mid-major to finish the regular season. 
consensus number one, and, and we're a top eight seat. And so uh, we host a regional, we host a super regional, but in that regional we hosted, we lost the first game one to nothing to Jackson State. And we had to come back the next day and beat San Diego State uh, and then beat Jackson State and then beat Mississippi State that night and then come back Monday. So now we're doing something crazy again. And we get past Mississippi State, who was the regional or a World Series runner up the, the previous year. And I just remember that last out, man. And, and, you know, it was, I'm behind him in a dugout. And we make that last out and the kids are going crazy. And he just says, go dog pile, go dog pile. And he had this, for as calm as coach was, he had this real loud bark. And that just gives me chills saying that. I mean, just as far as on the field, there was so many great memories, but that for where we started to, to culminate right there. Uh, you know, it's just something that I'll never forget. If he was here right now, what would you want to say to him? Oh man, you know, that's a really, really tough question because in the climate that we're in and, and, you know, in the circumstances in which me and my family came in and took over for him and his family, uh, it's been incredibly difficult, right? Uh, so you lose a best friend and, and, you know, so many around here lost, you know, a pillar of the community and the Robichaux family that we're all so close. And, you know, I only came back here because the, the, the family asked me to. That's, that's why I came back here. And, you know, without them doing that, I wouldn't have done that. And, uh, so it meant so much, man. And, and, you know, it was a, it was an arduous time because you're, you're trying to take over and, and help everyone else and the team and the community and the family, and you still haven't grieved yourself. And, uh, the, the beginning of the season was, you know, so emotional and the tributes and, and everything. And, and you look up and now, you know, we hit a global pandemic and, everything that comes with that pandemic and the, the unrest and, and this and that. And so uh, while I'm safe and secure and, and where I know coach is at and, and that's, that's dancing in heaven, uh, man, I miss him every day. And what a time for him not to be here. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's just. Well, and you're a, a guy of, that you're a guy that understands healing um, and, and second chances and, and kind of retribution. And, you know, at some point there'll be closure and it may not be for a while, but you understand that just as good as anybody about what the healing process does for people. It would just be a lot of what would you do here, coach? Because look, you know, not only are you, you, you going through this, this process of losing a, you know, an, a family member, uh, and a pillar and a rock. Uh, but now, you know, you, you have a team that hasn't done what it's, it's supposed to have done in the last two or three years. And there's roster management and, 
there's, you know, new, new things on the horizon with the NCAA and how we're going to go about it and the virus and are you going to play or are you not? So there's moving pieces every single day. And I just, I miss his wisdom. I miss his insight. Uh, and, and, you know, more than anything, I miss his, his patience and his, his friendship. You know, I'm, I'm in the office. I mean, right where I'm sitting right now is where he sat. And but I'm sure uh, he's looking, spent, I'm sure he's looking over you right now. No doubt. That was my guy, man. And and we spent hours in here and uh, just talking and talking and talking and laughing and crying and, you know, just, just so many, uh, so many valuable conversations. And, and you know what, too? And I think a lot of people can say this too. You, you, you don't really know what you have until it's gone. And there's so many other instances that I wish I, I personally would have taken advantage of uh, with him being here. But he was just a guy you never pictured him not being here. I never pictured coming back here because this is Coach Robe's place, you know. And uh, but but when he did get sick and I, I looked at Kathy and, and I just said, you know what we got to do. And uh, family reached out. And like I've told a lot of people, you know, he could have he meant this much to me. He could have been the head coach at the university of Siberia. I don't even know if they have that, but I'd have gone and, and, and taken over for him. Thanks coach. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it's my honor. And then Tony Robichaud hired me as an assistant at Louisiana Lafayette. I was there for six years and had a lot of good players there. And then from there, I kind of spent four years in the big, uh, big 12, two of Kansas, two of Kansas state. Uh, was able to kind of get back east where I'm from New York originally and, and spent five years at Maryland, University of Maryland, and then came down here from Maryland. So it's been a little bit of an around the dial kind of trek. Coach Robichaud is going into the Hall of Fame this year. What were yeah. some of the things you picked up from Coach Lawyer off your head? Uh, he was a great, I mean, he was, you know, he was just a good, I would say like he's just a good person. Good coach, obviously. Really good pitching coach. Um, he's a very funny guy, man. Like a lot of story I could tell you go on and on about stories, but like he always, like he, Tony held everything to a higher standard basically. So as a coach working for him, you, you felt like you had to do things a certain way because that was his standard. And, you know, of course they had just, I went there in 02. They had just come off of Omaha two years before that. So it was a pretty high standard, but the, the players held it. The, the past coaches held it. So when you went there, you just held it, you know? Uh, and it wasn't just on the field. It was like in the community too. Uh, so you, you really had to live a very clean, work a clean life there, which if you're doing things the right way, it shouldn't be a problem anyway. But, um, you know, he, he just, he, he, he gave me a lot of, um, got a lot of good experience from him as far as how to organize a program, how to fundraise, um, how to, kind of carry yourself in the community, so to speak. A lot of public speaking type things. Um, but he was always really good to the people that worked for him and played for him and tried to, you know, take care of those people as best he could. Here with Wade Seminoe, head coach at West Monroe, but coached at Lafayette, Louisiana Tech. And Wade, thank you so much for doing this as a tribute to Coach Robichaux. Um, I'm just, I'm really excited about this. We've had great content. So thanks again for coming on with me. I enjoy being here. Thank you, Ryan. You went from coaching at Episcopal High School and then to Lafayette. How, how did that happen for you with you and Coach Robichaux? 
Wow, that's 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 what I was asking back when because uh, you know, when that job opening came, when Rogue got the job in '95 in Lafayette, and I, I was knowing Robichaux through uh, American Legion baseball and stuff, and we had a pretty successful program in South Louisiana, and and when the job came open, you know, I applied for it, and uh, it was me and some other big names, and and I didn't know how good my chances were, but he ended up hiring me. He said he wanted somebody to come in there and work, and uh. He had some other options, but we went in there and got it done in a short period of time, and uh, they've been successful ever since. So, so when did he see you? He had seen you interact on the field, obviously, and coaching your guys up before you got to Lafayette? Well, when he was coaching at McNeese, we were uh, – I was coaching American Legion, and our Legion team won like nine out of ten state American Legion titles and, uh, you know, recruited some of my guys out of my American Legion team and – we had put together a elite schedule playing teams from, you know, East Cobb and Binghamton, New York and Anaheim, California. And we, one of the first teams to really travel around and uh, play the real good competition. Well, you're in 1991 American Legion coach of the year, which I'd, again, congratulations. Those are, this is fun for me when I get to do research on guys, cause these are things you don't know about guys. So that's a, uh, was eye opening for me. Um, you know, you get to Lafayette, what were some of the things that you learned from Coach Robe when you got there that maybe you didn't know from the outside looking in? He had recruited some of your players, but what what are some of the things that stuck out to you when you got there that maybe you didn't know from the outside looking in? Well, Tony was a guy that I did know for a while prior to, not really on a personal basis, but when I got there, uh, we were very similar in the way that we attacked things. I was an offensive guy. He was a pitching guy. And, uh, you know, Tony – was big on character, character, character. I can recall D2 uh, Tampa coming to Lafayette our first year together. And we were playing and we in the bottom of the fifth inning and we were down by about five or six runs and here comes a big thunderstorm. And there's a couple guys at the end of the dugout excited because we weren't gonna get that loss. It was, a, we didn't play five complete row show got them out of that dugout in a heartbeat to cover that field, knowing that we were down a pretty good bit and probably going to lose the game, made them cover it because they earned that loss. You know, that's that sent a message to me right there. He didn't want our guys getting any cheap win or somebody else not getting a win they deserve. And, you know, his character was 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 huge uh, thing that I noticed about him earlier. He was also a, a quiet coach during the games. He was a guy that coached hard at practice in that bullpen. But once that game started, he was quiet. I mean, he was one of the quietest coaches I've ever been around. He trusted his guys. He trusted his catcher. He trusted his pitchers. And, uh, you know, that trust goes a long way. You know, same thing with me. I felt the trust from him. He never treated me as an assistant coach. I mean, we were equals. And in his eyes, we were equals. In my eyes, I was his assistant. And, uh, you know, and he – he gave me the liberty to call the offense and do the things I had to do to, to score three runs. Because if I scored three runs, we were good. We were good because he took care of the rest. Did he let the pitchers and the catchers run the game, or did he call pitches? He, You know, my first couple years, he he had a system where he called them. But as we got better and our guys got mature and they understood his philosophy and his system, he let them run with it, man. And they knew exactly what they were going to throw when they had to throw it, identifying what the batter was doing, this and that, where he was standing and, and what he was looking for. But 
I mean, he let the majority of them go on their own. And, uh, and like I said, the practice that they did in that bullpen was, uh, I mean, it was intense. I mean, he had some good pitching sessions in there. What about on the recruiting side? You talk, he's so big on character. Were there kids that you kind of passed on, maybe didn't, didn't Absolutely. maybe fit the mold at Lafayette? Absolutely. I had to get some guys that, because I knew what kind of man Robe was, and I knew what kind of guy he was going to be a guy. You know, he didn't want any corner cutters. He didn't want the guys that were going to come in there and leave their lockers all messy and all. He wanted a guy that was going to take care of their academics, guys that were team players, guys that were dirt bags guys that were tough, guys that would never make excuses. He he liked guys that wasn't scared. I mean, the typical, uh, you like that and I like that, but I knew the kind of guys I had to bring in uh, to be successful for him. And, uh, you know, and he gave me, you know, he'd stay back at practice and I'd go out and recruit. And, you know, for eight years, uh, he trusted the guys that I brought in. What were your best memories about the College World Series run you guys made? Oh, God. That College World Series was incredible. I mean, you know, one thing about it going into that, Robe, Robe never changed. He never got big-headed. He never big league another coach. He never bad-mouthed another team. You know, and, and we made it to Omaha because we earned it. You know, we had to go through South Carolina in the Super Regional. They were number one. Had to beat them in Columbia. We lost the opening game. We never panicked. Came back and beat them game two and game three got to Omaha and it was like, you know, just winning that game to make it to Omaha was probably the the biggest, you know, the biggest excitement. And, you know, once we got there, we faced Stanford and get beat. And, and then we beat, uh, eliminate San Jose. We eliminate Clemson in a tremendous game. Then we have to beat Stanford again to get to LSU for the championship and ended up blowing a six, nothing lead. But, uh, you know, it was, to finish third in the country with UL Lafayette with their first, we were the USL Raging Cajuns, you know, to take UL Lafayette to the College World Series. And I'm going to tell you, I did the budget too, $70,000 for everything that year, 2000, when we went to Omaha, my high school that I'm at right now, West Monroe High School, we raise a hundred thousand and spend a hundred thousand every year on these high school kids. And we made it to Omaha on a $70,000 overall budget, travel included. So, uh, you know, but Omaha was uh, an experience that you really can't get enough of. We had a chance to make it there in 99. We lost to Rice in the Astrodome after winning game one in that Super Regional. They came back and beat us twice. So it was a, it was a fun time, man. One of the best times of my life, believe me. How then did he mentor you when you get the Louisiana Tech job? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I kind of lost it because emotionally I didn't want to leave, but I had an opportunity to to go and be a head coach. And, you know, at the time, it's a pretty cool idea. Hey, I get to go and do my thing. And But, you know, when Robichaud and I were together, you know, he had the pitchers, I had the hitters, and it was – we clicked together really well. And uh, – you know, they had some struggling years, a few, but they came back strong after a couple of years. And I had some struggling years at Tech. And it, it's, uh, you know, you go through those times. But he he wished me the best, man. And he said, you know, I hate to lose you, but but I want you to do what's best for you. When you're at Tech, 
how much did you guys talk then? Um, you know, it's different going from being an assistant at the division one level and then, you know, making decisions at the division one level, you know, what were some of the conversations you guys had during that time? Well, we would talk quite often, at least, well, I say quite often, at least once a week. And, um, you know, just his advice about, you know, make sure you handle the people that you need in your corner, you know, make sure you and your AD are on good graces, make sure you in the financial aid department or the academic department, you know, handle your business there. And, and I kind of understood that because I had part of those roles when I was at Lafayette, but, you know, my first game back when we went play against Tony and him down in Lafayette, you know, at home plate, he gave me a big old plaque with the, with my jersey and signed by the team and this and that, you know, it's pretty emotional moment. If he was here right now, what would you say to him? I wish we could get together and coach some more because that, like I said, that's the best time of my life. Those eight years and going from 96 when I got there, having, you know, a, a rebuild to 97 regional, 98 regional, 99 super regional, 2000 Omaha, 2001 rebuild, 2002 Super Regional. I mean, we had a good run there, and it was something that, uh, you know, I'll never forget. What do you think Tony would say about getting inducted into the ABCA Hall of Fame? He probably – he would probably say he didn't deserve it. You know, I mean, he's a real, real humble guy, real humble. Never, never wanted to take the credit, always gave credit elsewhere. You know, I can recall stealing home against Clemson. We had a first, third, delay stop. They didn't bite on it. They didn't throw the second. So we had second and third with two outs and one strike on the batter. And I flashed a steal sign, and our guys were ready for it because we worked on it. Pitcher checked up, and we we stole home after the game. They asked Tony, man, that's a gutsy call. He was quick to give me the credit for that. And, uh, you know, you don't forget things like that when the guy trusts you and gives you the liberty to run the offense and – also gives you the credit for it. What are some of the things that you took with your time with, with Tony now into West Monroe with you? Well, you know, just the way you treat kids and the way you spend time with those kids. Because when I bring a recruit in, I mean, it didn't matter how good, how how high draft choice to an average high school kid, he spent that time with those kids like no other. You know, he was a big-time family man with his wife, Colleen, and his and Ashley and Justin and Austin. I mean, he, you know, Tony didn't have hobbies. I golf every now and then, at least I try to. Tony didn't have hobbies. It was uh, family and baseball, and that was it. Coach Simino, um, what are some funny stories that you remember about you and Coach Robe? Well, one pops into mind where, uh, you know, Tony always, he was in the bullpen a lot during practice, and I'd have the hitters out there on the field, and and I can recall I had Stephen Feehan, our 2000 center fielder from Omaha years. You know, he, he couldn't go oppo. He couldn't go oppo to save his life. And, uh, you know, you do drills, you do drills, you do drills. But, you know, I had enough of it. And, uh, you know, we get a runner at second, nobody out. We want to move that runner. And so I took our shortstop, Rick Idell, which who was his roommate, and I said, Rick, you're going to come stand up here right where you would drag a bunt about – 25 feet from home plate at a direct line toward the shortstop. You're going to stand right here, Rick. Okay. He went stand right there while I'm throwing BP to Feehan. I said, Stephen, 
If you pull a ball, you're going to kill your roommate. You cannot, you got to stay inside this ball like your life depends on it or his life depends on it and go the other way. So I throw the pitch, whack, right center. I throw another pitch, whack, right center. I'm getting ready to throw a pitch and I feel something behind me. And it's Robichaux that came from the bullpen and he taps me. I said, What's up, coach? He goes, Can you spell liability? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, but I got him going opposite field. So I said, okay, Rick, get back to shortstop. And the next five or six throws were hit exactly where he was standing. You know, the trust of, of a teammate being having to go oppo with his roommate standing right there, I was just trying to get a point across. And Robichaud, man, he was quick to get out of that bullpen to straighten me out. You know, I was, I was just trying to do anything to help us perform the way we were supposed to. Coach, I wish you the best. Thank you very much. Brian, thank you for having me. Here with Mark Calvi, head coach at South Alabama. Um, Mark, thanks so much for coming on as a tribute for Tony here. Oh, it's a, an honor. An honor be, uh, to be speaking on his behalf. Can you go into dive in a little bit how you guys first met and um, just your first initial meeting with, with Coach and then how your relationship developed with him after that? Yeah. I first met Tony in 1999. Um, you know, he, he was obviously the head coach, which was then Southwest Louisiana. Um, and, and I was at FIU as an assistant and we, uh, it was our first year in the Sun Belt. And, um, you know, I just remember he, he, just how, how tough his teams were mentally tough and how level-headed he was, uh, was very serious. Um, but very level-headed, not a guy really to raise his voice or anything like that. But I just remember how you could tell, like those guys towed the line, um, and uh, but but they had a lot of fun and and how much they respected him. And um, you know, as a and he's not that much older than me, um, but he was always very gracious and complimentary, very serious um, about his team, but noticed things about other people's clubs and other people working hard and especially assistants. I just think he appreciated the good. I think he just appreciated the good stuff, to be honest with you. Is that what kind of attracted you to him, just how open he was? Yeah, and the thing, you know, with Tony, um, what attracted me to him was just how tough his team was. And I said, I, I got to keep my eye on, on on this guy. You know, I did because I, it just it stood out like a sore thumb. Um, he let his players be themselves. You know, he, uh, we all, you know, back in the day, man, we all had some different guys with Juco in high school. And um, he just, he let guys be who they are. Um, you know, it, some of their guys had their hair dyed yellow and white, and um, they had some great characters on their teams. But the common denominator was how hard they played and, and how much they loved the program. Like you could see that. Um, that stood out to me more than anything else how hard his players went and how much they respected him and how much they loved the program. That was the biggest thing for me. And I was like, you know, um, this wouldn't be, I, I think I'd like to, when I get a chance and you all, you know, you let the head coaches be, I was an assistant. And, but when I had a chance to talk to Tony, I did not, not bother him or um, but when I had a chance to speak to him, I would kind of pick his brain, you know, on little things, you know, just kind of understand and ask questions about him to other people, you know, just to kind of get an idea. And some of our players that played with their players over the summer and things of that nature, 
um, be, just because I, I was intrigued by by how, how hard they went all the time. What were some of the similarities between him and Coach Price? You were with Coach Price at FIU for a long time. What were some of the similarities? Yeah, just both very gracious people. Um, you know, the, the, I, the, their assistants loved them, treated their, assist, their assistants with respect, um, treated the players with respect, and and neither one were were, were finger pointers. You know, Tony um, t- Tony shouldered a lot um, of everything that was going on, and as the head coach, you do that. Danny Danny did as well. Um, they just that they owned the good and the bad, and they wanted other people around them to succeed. You know, and that that that's what a real leader does for me. That that's that that's a true characteristic of a real leader for me. What are some of the things that you're using now from both of those guys as a head coach at South Al? Well, I'll tell you, I, I and I learned a lot from both guys. You know, obviously, I, you know, the more rules you have, the harder it is to follow them, right? So you got to get the right guys on the front end and kids that want to compete or throw down like, like Robe used to say. Um, so I learned that, you, you know, you, you got to get guys, you got to get the right guys on the front end. And then you got to, you got to model what a man should be like. You know, you can't talk about um, being the man before they see what a man is and before they can become a man. Um, and, and that resonated with me. Um, you know, we, we assume so much with these guys um, and we expect them to be the man, you know, um, and a lot of them, they have no idea how to be a, a man. So just from modeling that on, on a daily basis, um, I've listened to a lot of Tony's podcasts. I've had a chance, um, he and I um, were, were, were friends and respected each other tremendously. Um, I always thought it was an honor to be on the same field. You, you know, the feeling when you're, when you're talking with somebody and you're like, this is a different dude. You know, and then you talk with other people and you're like, all right, I can't get away fast enough. Uh, but with a guy like Robe, you're like, you know, this is a different guy. You know, he it's like he knows things that that we that we don't know, you know, but but he never acted like it. Um, he was just I always found with him. And again, it's not like he was 75 years old. He's not that much older than me, but he had he was one of those people, one of those men that had wisdom beyond their beyond their years. Um, he was he was well read. Um, you know, very old school, but understood what was going on, but was current with issues. Um, but just, you know, with just a very virtuous, very virtuous and gracious and humble man. Do you feel like that's his biggest legacy is, is kind of turning boys into men? Absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, his biggest legacy, his biggest legacy um, are his players and his sons um, and how they are in, in society and with their wives and with their jobs. Um, that's, that's his biggest legacy. Not, not just what he, not just the footprint and his fingerprints that are all over, um, Lafayette. It's, uh, it's the hundreds of players that he was a positive, uh, role model in their lives. He was a shoulder to cry on. He was a foot to their behinds. Um, he was an honest, logical, um, you know, level-headed voice to, to kids at ages that um, they need it. You know, they need it at all ages, but having them at 18 to 22, um, they encounter a lot of things, you know, and especially in today's day and age, you know, Roby used to say it, man, it, the technology and it's tougher and tougher and tougher. Um, and you really don't have, you're fooled. It's a big lie to think that you have all these choices. You really don't, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fraudulent to believe, um, 
society and the news and, and social media, it's very, very fraudulent. Um, and that he kept the real things real and, and didn't didn't mistake the two between fantasy and reality and and, and talked taught them about reality and um, and made, he walked the walk, he talked the talk, and his players saw that and, and he modeled it every single day. Do you have a favorite memory of coaching against him? Yeah. Uh, it was actually the Sunbelt Tournament in 2000. I was an assistant at FIU. It was the year they went to the College World Series, and we beat them good the first game. They were better than us, but we beat them good. And it was double elimination. And um, they eventually stuck around to the end, but he made it, he checked out of the hotel. He checked out of the hotel before their second game. He checked him out and he said, if you guys don't want to be here, I'm not wasting money on a hotel room. And, uh, and they picked it up a notch. That's one of my favorite because we were around and I heard that he checked him out of the hotel and then, and then Lafayette, they, they stuck around to the championship game. And I think eventually South Alabama might've won the tournament. I'm not sure. Or middle Tennessee state won it that year. Um, but then, you know, uh, the, the raging Cajuns went on that run and went to the college road series, but that there's a lot of others. That was my favorite that and and one of the years they weren't in the conference tournament and he had he had all their players chasing foul balls for the tournament they hosted it it was in 2001 and he had all his players chasing foul balls <laughs> and uh <laughs> and and uh the year after let's put it this way they, they weren't chasing foul balls the year after like that didn't happen often but i'm like this guy is un i said i love this guy you know he made him toe the line man there are high expectations he had it he modeled it and he expected guys to either lead or, or follow him. And if they didn't, um, they got out of the way or they fell in the line really quick. There, there's a lot more, but those two, I mean, checking out of the hotel, that, that is, that's my favorite. That is beautiful, man. Cause his players must've been like, what the, you know? Um, and, and I'm sure they weren't really surprised by it. But he's like, if you guys, if you guys don't want to be here, I'm not spending money on you. Show me you want to stick around. You know, I don't know where we're going to stay, but it doesn't look like we're even going to need one for tonight, the way you guys are playing and um, boy, he had that effect on him, man. They they responded to him. He had their ears, and rightfully so. If he was here right now, what would you say to him? Oh man, Jeez. there's just not enough time. I, I I feel you know, I should have taken more time to. I should have called him more and just asked about life. Um, he and I would talk, and he and I I still have some texts that he and I have shared back and forth. Um, just about after playing each other. And his honesty, whether we won two out of three or they swept us, just an on, just a, a text every time we played at the end of the weekend with me. And I don't know if he did that with everybody, um, but I'd like to think I, I, you know what I mean? I'd like to think, um, you know, maybe he did. I don't know, but I, I, I'd like to think may, maybe he thought, you know, that highly of me to, to do that after we played win or lose. Um, I would just say thank you for, you know, to him. Um, thank you for, for what he's done, um, with, with men, with kids that are 18 to 22, because there's a real shortage of, of men in this society. You know it. I know it. There's a real shortage, man. There, there are males that, that, that can't handle things right. They can't do things right. And they don't have perspective. And he was a guy that just made this world, um, a little bit better man in his corner of, of South Louisiana, um, Southwest Louisiana. He just made it better. And there's a huge hole, not just in that state, but um, in the game, in the country, really. There's a huge hole with, with Coach Robe um, no longer here. Thanks for your time, Coach.
Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you having me, buddy. Here with Anthony Babineau. Um, appreciate you coming on. And probably out of everybody that I'm interviewing, um, you go back the the furthest with Coach Roba show. Um, go ahead. Yes, we have been together. Or we were together a while, for sure. You know, I was with him here at UL, USL when we started, southwestern Louisiana, and now Louisiana Lafayette. But but we were together since day one. You know, my, my playing days finished in the spring of 94, and Tony came over from McNeese uh, the fall of 94, before that 95 season. And I was fortunate enough to be kept on as a student assistant while I finished my undergrad work, and then that eventually turned into – volunteer assistant, which eventually turned into full-time assistant in a matter of, of, um, of three years. So very fortunate to have been with him from the start to not really build this program because this program was, was, um, had experienced a lot of success before Tony got here, but to maintain that success, build on that success. You know, when Tony took over, it was kind of a little bit in a rocky road. It was on probation from some things that have happened we were minus a few scholarships for those first couple of seasons, but we were able to get through that and in a few short years, get back to regionals and then super regionals and then Omaha. And, and, you know, for the 25 years that he and I were together, it was just a beautiful thing working hand in hand with him and, and kind of becoming his, his right-hand man and the guy that he, he knew that he could turn to and trust to, to get things done or to have his back and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we've been we were together a long time. What were some of the biggest things he did in the beginning to help get things turned around? I think the biggest thing he did was just roll up the sleeves and, and get to work. It really was. Those are the things that I remember those those first few years was just the amount of of labor that we put into this thing to to get it back to where it needed to be and even grow it beyond that. You know, anything from from cleaning up the facility to improving those things. And, you know, back then we're talking 1995. I mean, that's, you know, 25 years ago. Things are not the same, obviously, as they are now. And, I mean, we just, we did tons of work out on the field from constructing a new wall, improvements to the locker room. I mean, he tells a story, uh, he's told the story to a lot of our teams just in letting the teams know the history behind this place and, and some of the things that he and I have done. He tells one story about when we were constructing the new wall and, and his brother, his youngest brother, who was a welder at the time, helped us out with the welding and we were carrying pipes and we had to carry it in our forearms and we had burn marks from the pipes. And, you know, it just, that's what I remember the most is just the, the intense labor and the work that we put into this place to, to get it back to where it needed to be. What are your best end game memories with coach Robichaux? Man, there's so many, you know, I've been asked that question so many times, you know, whether it be a memory or his famous robisms that he would say all the time, you know, and, and it's so hard to pinpoint just one because of the length of time that we were together, you know, in game, Man, just the way he kind of managed the game, how some games, you know, obviously the score and, and the situations kind of dictated things. But, you know, some games, him just being so calm throughout the game and, and other games where from inning number one to inning number nine, it was just, you know, he was and I uh, really were just 
nervous as, as could be, you know, but he always had a good rapport with the players during the game, you know, when they would come to the dugout. Obviously, he was in the dugout his whole career. You know, he never – I think he was out on the bases one year while he was at McNeese, but besides, besides that – Hey, do you, do you feel the, because he was a really good pitching guy, that's was his comfort level was staying in the dugout because he was such a good pitching guy? I think so. Absolutely. Um, but the fact also that he was a head coach really from the get go of his career, I think that lended to him, lended him to be in the dugout the whole time also, you know, so, you know, and, and for most of my career, I was out on the field on the bases, whether it be first or third and then in the, uh, you know, the last few years being, being in the dugout, um, he just had a really good way with, with not only his coaches, but with the players in that dugout, whether it be, you know, he was a pitching coach, obviously, but he knew hitting as well, you know, and, and he, he could talk to the hitters, the pitchers. It really didn't matter. He just had a great rapport with everyone involved. How much of, what you saw from him and who he was as a person, did he bring all of that into the field and into the program with him, kind of who he was as a person away from it? He bring all that into him with the program? He absolutely did. You know, he was a man of, of uh, great character, high integrity, great moral values. So he really did bring that into him with the program and, he did his absolute best. I mean, it was his mission to take all of that and instill it in our players. I mean, everybody knows with Tony, it was more than, than just baseball. It was teaching these kids about life, uh, making sure they got their degree. He was adamant about that all the time, making sure things stayed well in the, in the community and that they served the community and that they weren't just here. They, they obviously, we all know, uh, kids that play baseball in college, they, they go to whatever school they go to for baseball. I mean, we all know that, right? Um, but he made sure that they knew that that was not their only mission. I mean, you know, you may have come here with the thought process of, man, I'm going to play baseball. But once you got here, it didn't take long for you to really understand that, man, I'm just not here to play baseball. And that was one of his biggest strengths and, and one of his biggest gifts to get all these kids to understand that it's about more than just baseball. Cause when they come in, like I said, they just think it's about baseball. Do you think that's his biggest legacy? It was turning, you know, boys into men. 100%, 100%. That's his biggest legacy besides the mark that he left on this, on this university and this baseball program and the community, right? The Lafayette community. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the community. I mean, he, it would be it would be a crazy number if I could actually come up with a number of how many speaking engagements he did here in the community. Um, but he was an icon. He really was here and not not just in the most mostly in this community, but in this state and, and in this region. I mean, because of his service work, you know, I mean, baseball is one thing and he had over a thousand wins and and all these things and but what he's remembered for the reason that there were over 5,000 people at his funeral was not because he won a thousand plus games it was because what he meant to them and and the fact that he always one of the things that was most impressive to me about him is he always had time for anybody it didn't matter 
who he or she was, what he or she wanted. He always had time for that person. And he may not have had time right before practice, but I'll be darned if that person wasn't there after practice and wanted some time with him. They got some time with him. If he was here right now, what would you tell him? What would I tell him? I would, you know, I'd want to tell him the things that I've told him from time to time, but not really told him, if you know what I mean, just how much he meant to me, how much I love him, how much of an impact he had on my life and my career, just giving me the opportunity at, at 23 years old when I finished college to, to stay in this game and to continue with the, the learning process that, that I was going through from transitioning from a player to a coach and just that I love him and, and miss him and, and really how much he meant to me and not just me, but to my family as well. How much did he help you with the transition going from being a player in the program to then coaching in the program? Not an easy thing to do. Those of us that have had to coach the guys that they played with, how much did he help you with that transition going from player to coach? That was a huge thing for me because for me, <clears throat> my start got, I got started differently than, than probably 99.9% of people that got started because, you know, earlier before we started, you asked if I, if I finished in 95, I actually finished in 94. I thought I was going to finish in 95, but because of um, just, like I said, that was 25 years ago, a long time ago, compliance back then wasn't what compliance is now. I thought I had an extra, I thought I had another year left. I thought I was coming back that fall of 94 for my senior season. The way it shaked out, I'd already exhausted my, my five years to get in four. And so I instantly, I mean, I was done. I mean, I got called into the, um, uh, our senior women's administrator's office one day. I, I remember I get into my locker one day and I've got a note from three different administrators to see them. And so I'm like, what in the world did, did I do? I mean, I'm, I'm a, I do what's right. I go about my business. I mean, what? So one of them, she asked me, you know, when I graduated high school and when I first enrolled full time. So I told her and she says, Anthony, I'm sorry to tell you that. I mean, your eligibility is exhausted. I said, no, ma'am. I said, this is my senior year. I redshirted my first year. And so she explained to me how it all worked and the seasons of eligibility. So I'm instantly from a player to I go back out that right after that meeting to what I thought was going to be practice. And I pulled up my teammates and I said, hey, boys, I said, I'm done. I am done. They're like, what do you mean? And I said, I I'm done. So when Tony got there, I ex kind of explained him the situation and I told him I I was thinking about getting into coaching and that's what something I wanted to do. And so he said, man, he said, I can keep you on as a student assistant. So, you know, instantly he started teaching me and, and you know, the, the differences and things that, you know, Hey, you can't, you can't do everything that you, you, you did, you know? And, um, you know, at first, obviously as a kid, that's, I mean, I'm still wanting to, to go out and party and do all those things with my guys. And, but at the same time, I had to show a little bit of separation so that they wouldn't, um, you know, if I would say something, not, not that those first couple of years, I, I corrected them that much because, you know, um, I was right on the side of them, you know, the, the, the previous year, but he taught me a lot about that separation from, from player to coach and just some things that were really, 
non-negotiables that you have to do if you want to coach. So he was instrumental in that part for me. I think about how difficult that was when you do it. Um, you know, and, and for anybody that hasn't had to go through it, um, you know, it's extremely difficult process. It's rewarding. Um, cause it is like, you're still teammates a little bit with them. Um, yeah. what are some of the other things that you picked up from coach along the way? Cause I mean, you were with him your entire career. Um, you know, what are some of the other things that you picked up from coach along the way? You know, just really how to, I was fortunate, grew up in a great household, great parents. And, and, you know, when I, when I got to college and, and even a little later, I, I, I had a great base for how to live my life, you know, but as we all know, athletes, they're with their coaches more than they're with their, <clears throat> than they're with their parents, right. Once they start college and the same thing for, for us as coaches, I mean, we're with each other every single day. So, you know, I was, I was with him every day and, and just to, to um, I guess, mimic the way that he would go about his business, whether it be with the public or with the administration, you know, that was one of the bigger, bigger things is, you know, as a player, you don't really have to deal with the public, but once you step to that, step on that coach side, you know, everybody wants, uh, you know, um, everybody wants your ear, you know, uh, they all want to know the insides and things like that, which understandably so. So just watching the way that he interacted with, with the public, the administration, things like that. And, and that's just something that continued throughout, throughout our 25 year career. I mean, really, um, learn things from him throughout the, the entire time, all 25 years, you know, um, how gratifying was going to Omaha. It's still the, the next to the birth of, of my two daughters, you know, um, just the best experience. I mean, been working tirelessly since 2000 to try to get back there. And we got very close in 2014. But um, yeah, I remember telling people once we got back that, you know, when people asked how it was, I was like, whatever you see on TV, it's a hundred times better being there, you know? And it was just very gratifying for us to take our program there, especially you know, we didn't do it in year 10, 12, 15. We did it in year five uh, of, of he and I being here. And so I think that was was one of the most gratifying things, too. We were able to get that done so quickly. And like I said, been trying ever since to get back there, man. But it's a hard thing to do. It really is. This past weekend, played their first game here at home. And it came down to a field goal with two seconds left. So... Our guy um, was two for six on the season. Just was uh, just a, and I mean, missed some chip shots. And, and so everybody's kind of down on him. You know, obviously the team is still behind him, but you know, the, the mumblings around town, you know, we need a kicker and all this stuff. And so Saturday's game early on, he makes a 25 yarder. He missed a 37 yarder, two seconds left. He lines up for a 53 yarder to win the game. Well, guess what his number is? He wears number 36, which is Tony's number. The ball was marked on the 36-yard line for it oh, to be a 53-yard wow. field goal. And when I tell you he kicked the ever-loving you-know-what out of it right through the uprights and it had been good from 60, it was just incredible. So I just got chills. Man, everything started, you know, man, did you see what number he's wearing? It was on the 36-yard line. It's, it's just crazy. 
since Tony's death, the things that have come up with the number 36, whether it be three, six, or you add up a couple numbers and they add up to 36. It's just, it's wild. It really is. Yeah. So, awesome. But that was something that just happened this Saturday that kind of brought up Tony again, you know, every once in a while an event will happen and, and man, that Tony did that, or that was Tony's this, that was Tony's that. And every once in a while something comes up and it's good to kind of just remember him, you know, because in everything, you know, life goes on. Right. And, and, uh, He's surely not forgotten about, but but life does go on. Um, so every once in a while to to see something that reminds you of him or, you know, one of the things that me and Matt and, and all the guys in the office talk about all the time is we really, really, really wish that he was still here in this time that we're going through right now to see what his take would have been on all this. Not Not really, not just his take, but to see how he would have handled it and how he would have coached others yeah, not not just for you guys, but but for the coaching community as a whole. So it wouldn't have just helped you guys there. It would have helped the coaching community as a whole if he was still here. Right. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, but just a, just a great man. Yeah. Just a really great man. Thanks for sharing coach. Yep. Absolutely. About eight, nine, ten years ago, we started looking at how the athlete was coming to us, uh, what society was doing with him. And because of that, we, we kind of flipped the script. Um, now what we do is we have a, a day set aside every week. It's called either Motivational Mondays or Wisdom Wednesdays. We spend one hour uh, with our players working on them. The biggest problem I find today is society is lying to them. Uh, is changing uh, how they see things. And we as coaches have to try to put things back in perspective for them. I think they've been given a bad playbook. I think the millennials aren't bad with kids. I think they've been given a bad playbook. And I think it's our job as coaches to get that playbook out of their hands and get a better playbook back in their hands because society is lying to them. Uh, not only is society lying to them, but some of their parents are lying to them. So that's making it more and more difficult for teachers and coaches today simply because they're coming to us with a bad playbook. But I don't think it's their fault. I think old school coaches have a hard time right now in, in dealing with where we're at today because they can sometimes hate the kid, hate the parent. I don't always believe the kids are bad. I just think somebody's giving them a bad playbook. If our football coach gives our quarterback a bad playbook and he really suffers, on a weekend football game, I don't think we can hate the kid. He's been given a bad playbook. So what we try to do is we try to give him the bad playbook. Our truth has been taken out of school. We've taken Christ out of school. We're fearful to mention his name today. You see, I'm, I'm, we're too worried about who we're going to offend today instead of worried about who we're going to inspire today. See, somebody's destiny is hooked to you. And the more you sit down, the more you're scared to mention Christ's name, because that's our problem today, is we sit down. We sit down at the town hall meeting. We sit because it's safe. We don't want to stand up anymore. Because of that, a lot of our kids can't stand up. I know you're having a hard time finding leaders, finding the leaders. They don't want to stand up. They don't know how to stand up. So I challenge you as coaches today, 
not to go silent like we have. You see, we tell our players all the time, they go read the Bible. In there, it doesn't say they got to be a baseball player. But it's explicit in there on what kind of man they need to become. Crystal clear. We ask our players to go home the first day and ask their mom and dad to talk to them about how the curveball slide has helped their marriage. Baseball is going to play a very small role in their life, but making them a man plays a huge role in their life. You see, their sport will never get them in trouble. Next time you see somebody in trouble in athletics, look at the highlight. The sport didn't get him in trouble. It never does. What gets them in trouble is the decisions they make as men. This gets us in trouble. It will keep us in trouble. Their sport has nothing to do with their trouble. When an athlete punches his wife in the elevator, when the athlete puts his hands on his wife, whatever he does, next time someone athlete's in trouble, you read the headlines. It will not be a sport that got him in trouble. What got him in trouble is the decisions he made as a man. That's what gets them in trouble. And that's what keeps them in trouble. But yet every whacked out parent today has their seven-year-old, a running coach, a hitting coach, a throwing coach, a fielding coach. They've got him loaded down with every coach they think he needs by the time he's eight years old. Some of them paying $100 an hour for tutoring. But yet his sport will never get him in trouble. It will never get him in trouble. What's getting him, get him in trouble is who he is as a man. This is what gets us in trouble. This is what will get every one of your players in trouble. And it will keep us in trouble. But yet, that whacked out parent has got him every coach they think he needs. The hitting coach, the running coach, the throwing coach, the fielding coach. But they will not put a dollar, one dollar into a life coach. One dollar. We'd have way more people here today if we were talking about how to pitch, how to throw, how to run, how to hit. We'd have a lot more people here today. If one of us as coaches threw a leadership camp on my campus for two days, I'll probably have one guy and a dog show up. Right? We, we put out there that we're going to teach somebody how to throw 94 on Monday. They'll be lined up at the back door, whacked out dad with his money. Everything ready to go. Right? And that's our problem today. You know, we laugh about it, but it's, it's a shame. It's really a shame on where we're at. But let, let, let's move forward. Here's what up the premise of these seven lies. This is 31 years as a head coach. This is not something I read in the book, this is something I've seen over my 31 years. I want to start with God gives us two gifts. He gives all of us two gifts in our life. The first gift he gives us is a universal gift. We all have it. I have it. You have it. It's the gift to just make a difference in somebody's life, to hold the door open, to say, how are you doing today? To pick up the phone and call somebody when you know his dad died, and you watch your brother die, and your mom die, and you know how that feels. That you reach out to somebody. You open that door. See, it doesn't take any degree or any experience to open up the door for somebody. That's a universal gift. We all have it. That gift does not get us in trouble in our life. 
second gift that God gives us that gives us some trouble in our life is called a unique gift. The gift I have, Butch doesn't have it. The gift I have, Lane doesn't have it. The gift Lane and Butch have, I don't have. We have to dig deep and find out what is our unique gift. What's that second gift that God has given us? The reason this gift gets us in trouble is because it brings money. It can bring fame. Maybe the ability to speak. Maybe the ability to coach. Maybe you become the, the world's greatest lawyer. I don't know what your, your unique gift is, but God gave that to you to live an abundant life. So you can make money off of it. Fame can come off of it. Glory can come off of it. There's a lot of things that can come off that unique gift. That unique gift will get us in trouble if we don't know how to manage that unique gift. And so what I'm going to show you today is what happens to great coaches that get in trouble, the greatest players that get in trouble, even people in society, movie stars, actors, all of this follows any profession. But these are the seven lies that I've seen that happen in athletics when some kid has a unique gift and he's your star pitcher, or maybe he's a star player at junior high, whatever the case may be. Starting to see some of these seven lives starting to show up. When you go back to work Monday, I can sit in the hallway at a junior high and I can show you a kid in which one of these lives he's already in. Just by watching his demeanor, watching how he treats people in the hallway, I can already tell what seven lives or what lie he's living out. Because sport lies to us seven times if we're not careful. So I'd like to show you those today. Lie number one, we can link our identity to a game. The worst thing you ever want to do is link your identity to a game. You can let your fans do it, your boosters do it, but once you link your identity to a game, you're going to be in some serious trouble because when the game leads you, your identity is going to lead you. See, a baseball coach is what I do. It's not who I am. You might think you know me. Probably don't because you know me as a baseball coach. That's what I do. That's not who I am. It gets movie stars and actors, successful coaches, successful players in trouble in life is it's lie number one. They hook their identity to a game. You should never hook your identity to something that's fleeting. You should never hook your identity to something that's going to leave you. Jesus Christ will never leave you. But we don't hook our identity to Him. We look at our identity and say, oh man, he's got a thousand wins, or he's been to Omaha, he's been this, he's been that. I don't need all that to validate me, because that's not who I am. Baseball coach is what I do, it's not who I am. The game will leave us. Remember this, your wife married you, not the game. My wife, Colleen, married me. She didn't marry the game. She stuck to the game, but she didn't marry the game, right? This is why athletes beat their wives, in my opinion. It's because once your wife sees you married to an identity, instead of her, she starts to chip away at it. And man, when you chip away at a man's identity, he wants to beat his wife over it. He, he wants to defend himself over it because he thinks that's who he is. And I think this is why guys, especially sports and successful people, have a difficult time. It's because
because they link what they do with who they are. I think that's why we lose a lot of movie stars. I think that's why we lose a lot of successful people in this country, is because what they do becomes who they are. I think that's a dangerous place to be in your life, and I challenge you not to let your best player start to link his identity to a game, man. He's going to have a very hard time in life. 